Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast. I am your host here on the DTP. My name, well, my name is Colton G., and this week on the show, I'm joined by Lorraine Sagato of the Parachute Club as we discuss, well, not only the Parachute Club, but also their single, Rise Up, which has recently been inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that before we jump into this conversation with Lorraine. But before we do that, a few things I want to take care of first, and that is thank those of you who checked out last week's episode and gave me positive feedback for my little dive back into a little of my personal world, some things that have happened to myself. We don't do that commonly on the podcast, and thankfully you guys enjoyed it actually, so thank you for the positive feedback as I got a little personal and um, exposed who I am and a little of what led to this moment in our lives. I also want to go ahead and shout out I ilovedtp.com because it's where you're going to go ahead and get yourself swagged up, decked out, geared out in all of the latest and greatest Desert Tiger podcast merchandise. And, well, it's also the best way for you to support the show other than subscribing and sharing the episodes, which we also love you doing as well. All right, let's do this. This year, the Parachute Club's hit track, Rise Up, was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, cementing the song and the Parachute Club's importance in Canadian music history. The idea of world music plays a much larger part in popular culture today, but in 1983, the sounds of a group like the Parachute Club were a refreshing change-up not only because of the gathering of grooves it collected together, but also for its socially conscious lyricism. Rise Up was the last song that Lorraine Segato and the Parachute Club recorded for their self-titled debut album, and it launched a group that was formed for a one-set-only festival performance, suddenly onto radios and stages across Canada, and even further, as their vision for changing the world grew with it. Having made it to a higher platform, the group wished to continue using its form of positive conversation to create change. But the business side of the music industry had other goals as radio, managers, label executives, and hell, even food brands attempted to turn this dream into something much easier to market. Even with all of those setbacks, Lorraine Segato has always fought for what she believes in, as she continues to evolve and adapt, just like Rise Up continues to inspire, not only in its original form, but also through a remix, a country version that features 17 of Canada's finest country musicians, and even a new 35-year anniversary edition that was recently released that features not only original members of the Parachute Club, but even emerging Canadian artists as well on the track who get to add a little bit of their own voice, helping to continue to, well, inspire a new generation. Lorraine Segato joins me here on today's episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast to talk 
about the Parachute Club and how they went from a one-time festival set to inspiring youth of various backgrounds across the world. Rise Up and its importance not only when it was released, but even in today's political climate and, well, Lorraine's ambitions outside of music, like film, theater, and world culture. And I can't wait for you to hear all about it. So why don't we go ahead and play for you the Diesel remix of Rise Up so that we can go ahead and jump into my conversation with Lorraine Segato.
The Desert Tiger Podcast. Lorraine Segato and the Parachute Club were a world music group out of Canada that launched themselves not only with their socially minded lyrics and music, but also with their danceability, their ability to make you just want to jump onto your feet and just move along to the music that they were creating. They made powerful songs about unity, strength, equality, and peace, just to name a few things. And one of the songs that really captured this was possibly one of their biggest songs of all of them. This, of course, being their single, Rise Up. I'm sure you've heard it around the world. And today, I'm joined by Lorraine Segato of The Parachute Club to not only discuss this powerful single, The Parachute Club, and a little bit about Lorraine herself. Thank you for joining me here today, Lorraine. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure that I get to speak with someone <laughs> such as yourself. Oh, it's, it's good. I, you know, I like to talk about uh, things that mean something to people. And uh, it seems at this point in time that, you know, y- you mentioned our song Rise Up, and it seems at this point in time, it seems to be coming around again. And I find that fascinating. Yes, it seems that it definitely still has a lot of relevance in today's world. And that's something I also want to get into later on in this conversation. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the start of things, because from what I can see, the Parachute Club was formed as an offshoot, as a one-show type deal, because your actual group at the time with drummer Billy Bryans wasn't able to actually perform this gig. And so tell me, how did the Parachute Club end up coming together from your times in the Toronto Queen Street West Arts scene? And just how did this one show suddenly launch the Parachute Club into, well, pretty much Canadian, like you guys were on every radio pretty much. Yeah, it was. And it was a bit of a surprise too, because so let, to go back, Billy Bryans and I started working together when I was in this all-woman band called uh, Mama Kia 2. It, this band was a, a feminist, uh, seven-piece feminist outfit that played kind of rock and some Latin stuff and, and uh, also had percussion and everything. And because there were so few women drummers, when the woman drummer left, Billy Bryans, who was my dear friend at the time, and was a big producer, you know, of blues bands uh, such as Downchild, etc. I sort of tapped him to come and play in this this all woman band, and he became the token feminist. And from that point, he and I joined and started another group called V, which was a it was a mixed race uh, dub funk reggae band, and I was the lead singer in that group, that small group, uh, along with a guy named Moja. He was a Rastafarian. I was the feminist singer, <laughs> and and we would we would trade off songs, and so the four of us became this kind of cult classic in in the Toronto art scene, and we had been asked if we could play the the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, we couldn't do it as that unit because I think Mojo was away. So Billy and I put together a loosely you know loose knit group of seven musicians. And as a result, and then we had to come up with a name for it. Basically, Parachute Club was the name we came up with. 
for that group. And it was there that uh, we were spotted by an independent record company. And then things went on from there. Like we played another booze can. I think we played this booze can and then all these record people came out. And then we were offered a demo deal. So, you know, what was really interesting was it just happened. It felt like we were doing it a long time, but it just happened really quickly. Uh, From the point at which we actually formed Parachute Club, it happened very quickly. Okay, so I actually want to just go back a little bit there. So you guys had gotten a little bit of that world music influence from just your work inside of the Queen Street West scene and just working with various other musicians from different communities. Yeah, for instance, you know, Moja, who is a well-known lead singer of a group called Truce and Rights, which was a reggae, uh, you know, soca band, reggae and soca, Caribbean-based music band, and and also socially conscious, you know, political music as well. We were kind of parallel to each other. Like the group I was in, Mama Kia, and Truce and Rights were the two kind of, I'd say, kind of political art groups in in the Queen Street area. And then out of that came all these other groups that, you know, you ended up playing in. And we uh, formulated the group V for victory uh, based on the Thomas Pynchon novel, <laughs> you know, out of that. And then, and then yeah, out of there came uh, the Parachute Club. And the other thing about the, the early days of the Parachute Club, which was really interesting, was uh, because uh, we were all kind of multidisciplinary artists, in the original group, like the very first time we played, there was a guy named Greg Couillard who was a famous chef. He played cowbell. <laughs> and there were Moja played, I think, the very first gig we did at the Booze Can. So there were so many people jumping in. Um, we didn't really formulate the stable members of the group until we started making our record. Okay, so let's get into how that transitions. You already mentioned a little bit about it, but I'm interested. So when you're playing the initial year of the Toronto International Film Festival there, was this songs that you guys had already written for previous projects? Were this some of these songs that you had just written for it? Yes, some of them were. For instance, our song Boys Club was a song that we had on tap uh, that we finished in the... And Alienation was another song that we had that was kicking around. That came, actually, I had written that around the time when I was in Mama Kia. And so we had some material. And then we also had cover material that we would, you know, make it more Parachute Club, you know, in its groove, you know. Like we would change it. Like we had a song called Groovin', which was a really old kind of, soul R&B song that we we changed up and we had a song by Fela Kuti who was a famous African musician we had some of that material we had some really deep funk material coming out of the states and so we you know we were developing our sound is what I would say in the early days before we developed our lyrical content Okay, so let's take it into the transition of the studio then, because the Parachute Club was formed as a one-off. Suddenly you're playing a few different events, and then you're getting offered a deal after you guys have played in a few different groups. You released an EP with Mama Kia, and so where is the first studio 
experience like for the parachute club because this must have been a little bit of a rush yeah it it was interesting because i remember the we had just played this booze can and and there was you know booze cans were big back in the early 80s because in ontario there was a bit of a kind of prohibition feeling you know um like the bars would close at 11 or something and and artists would not you know uh, want to go to bed at 11 so there were all these like illegal booze cans everywhere and that's where all the really interesting music was taking place and that's where the record company people would come to see other people so there was a guy there and he said you know we'd like to offer you a demo deal you know to make a demo for a record and we'll, we'll shop the demo and see how it goes and uh, <laughs> I remember Billy and I going I don't know do you want to make a record <laughs> like because we this was a new project, we weren't didn't feel quite settled yet, uh, but we decided to take the demo deal. As soon as we finished it, they happened to be shopping the demo in Europe at the Madem conference, and we got word. Billy and I were actually in uh, Trinidad and Tobago for the month of January, trying to write new songs, right? And we got word that the album was going to come, that there was going to be a full album. And then it was like we had to come back to kind of finish the songs for a full album. And the interesting thing is is that Rise Up itself is from uh, all of the influences that we had while we were studying soca music down in Trinidad and Tobago with our friend Moja, who, who was taking us around there. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was, Rise Up was one of the last songs that we wrote on the debut album. Really? Yes. It was never, um, yeah, it was kind of, you know, you had, back in those days, you'd have 11 or 12 songs or 10 songs on a record. And, you know, everything that we did, we did kind of, everything came out of a jam. You know, nobody was often, you know, writing by themselves and brought a song to the group. You, they might go, oh, I've got this riff or I've got this idea. And then we would all we would all work on it. Okay, so everyone had their own voice in things. Did that make its way into your songwriting aspects as well within, like, the music? Yeah, um, I think what happened is, you know, those that were there at the time, not all of the players would be there while we were writing songs, but those that would be there, that's why you have a lot of songs have multiple uh, composers, you know? Like, there's very few of the Parachute Club songs where there's only one writer. We all sort of, basically, if you were there and you were contributing, you were getting a piece of the song. Okay, so nobody was being left out for their contributions at all, which is truly beautiful. Um, well, in some cases, I'd have to say uh, the, probably the person who, who got the least amount out of it would, would have been Margot Davidson, who was our sax player. Although she did write, she did bring Love is Fire to uh, the, the origins of Love is Fire uh, to, to the table later on when we did the Small Victories record. But I think probably Margot was not there a lot of the time that we were writing. So she probably, you know, it would, yeah, it would be unclear to say that all of us at all points always got divided equally. But... But we did. We we were in fact a band that whose magic was in the collaboration with each other. That I can say for sure. 
All right, fantastic, and it definitely sounds like it was magical. Yeah, we, you know, I think that when I look back on the situation from the point at which we were touring a lot, you know, the point after the record came out, and much to our surprise, the song, the song, so the last song we wrote became the first single, and that first single, uh, you know, within a period of, I guess, over the course of the six months, because we released it in 80, 1983, the summer of 1983, we had the band in 1980, the fall of 1982, we put the band together, and by the summer of 83, we had done our first record over the course of January to June of that, you know, of 83, and then it got released. Then the song itself spent six months basically on the charts there and and over and so we started touring and i would say that actually the real magic of the group is our live performances because as a seven-piece group that had figured out that we all play our own small part like that every mus musical instrument is a part of a larger conversation that was the basis of the group, and that was an African idea, which was every part you play, small or large, is really important in the totality of the conversation. So we were like a great live group. I got I to gotta say, I think people felt, felt the energy, you know? Definitely. And was the live show something that you guys had to work on? Because... Like we mentioned, as you guys are going into the studio, you're still somewhat figuring out exactly who the Parachute Club is, as it's coming out of various different projects, so you're still figuring that out. Do you guys have to figure out your live aspect as well, and how to represent this music? No, I think that, that, was, that was very organic. It came very quickly, and it was already there. You know, Billy had a very specific drumming style, I had a very specific singing and, and guitar playing style in that we both came from reggae. You know, we both loved reggae and funk and, and R&B and, and kind of, uh, you know, groove. It was always about the groove. And we knew that right in the very, very beginning, like even when before we went to make our record, we knew we were going to be a socially conscious or a political, you know, band uh, that was going to write music like that was going to write lyrics or content that said something but we also knew that we really wanted it to be uplifting and celebratory and really inclusive in terms of just making people feel good you know while they're thinking about what we're talking about you know mm -hmm. so we we had that already that was already there even before we made the record oh definitely and i can understand doing that because sometimes in releasing socially conscious music sometimes you can get spirits people's spirits down so combining it with that energy definitely gives it that other vibe that also make gives it a positive spin of like yeah let's let's change the world yeah exactly i have to say we were really we really were idealists at that point you know we were young enough to be idealists about what we could hope the music could do you know if you it's hard for many people to look back on 83 you'd have to be a certain age i think but those times were also scary times in that there was the cold war was still going on between russia uh, ronald reagan had just become president uh, so all this neoliberalism uh, you know this um, 
trickle-down theory, economics was all working. And, uh, you know, there was a recession that had happened in the country. And then there were all the sort of social and civil rights uh, things were going on, uh, you know, pro-choice, not pro-choice, uh, all those arguments. There was a lot going on at that time. So you had to, if you wanted to have a message, you really, you wanted to bring energy and positivity to the situation. Definitely, because this is actually before I was even born. So it's interesting to see, like just hear the difference in the world just and how this song came out in a point in time and probably was something that helped people find a voice in which they were trying to express themselves in these moments. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, and the thing is, uh, the other reference for me would have been, and I was young when this happened, but, you know, around the time of Woodstock, 67, I think, I guess the Vietnam War was going on, and, and there was all this social unrest in the United States and then all this explosion of music that came out of that, which would have been, you know, Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan and, and, and all these folkies, you know, which kind of changed uh, a trajectory of music. Well, the same thing happened. So you scroll forward to the 19, early 1980s and the same thing happened for us, which was in my generation, we were like, God music was coming over from uh, England and you had bands like The Clash and the two-tone reggae bands, and then you had Grandmaster Flash, you know, with, with the songs like The Pusher and that. So you had the early origins of hip-hop were coming across the border, right? Um, so all of those things were also influencing us. You know, we were just a part of the larger uh, social change that was going on demographically in the world. You know, what's really interesting is to be living in this time and watching what's going on right now, not just politically, but, you know, around stuff around climate change and, and, and what young people are worried about, those things uh, we were worried about in the 80s, um, and we're still worried about them now. So it's the decision to have a band that could talk about that, but also be really positive and energetic and try to bring hope because without hope, without hope, you know, what, what is the purpose? It's not simply good enough to dissect the problem, but without hope, it's hard to think of a positive outcome. Absolutely. I can absolutely agree with this. Hope is a wonderful thing. and <laughs> It really is. And how, how do you push on without it? That's right. You have to always find it. I think you have to find it somehow. And sometimes it just comes in the camaraderie of tribe, of of connection to friends and, and chosen family, you know, or family. Absolutely. So you guys release this single and you release your first album and suddenly it launches you into this new level where, like you said, suddenly you're touring, suddenly you're on the radio and then you guys are winning Juno Awards, you're in the public eye and it's it's a very big difference from the arts scene that you came from so how did the band transition into this new world because suddenly you're in the music business that's right that's a good question because there were moments where that transition were dif was difficult 
keep in mind we came from this artistic community of a street that was bubbling and burbling and had a lot of different artists on it and we would like spend our nights going from you know like from gig to gig supporting each other all of us you know supporting each other's bands because at that point we were also still in many other bands and so were the players in in parachute club they were also in other bands so we went from this close-knit uh community that kind of looked after each other to um touring across the country and having to do for the first time in our lives interviews uh, interviews where people would say to us well why do you have to be so political or why do you have to have opinions or why why are you playing reggae music uh in your grooves so we had to kind of tell people who we were where we came from and we'd be like you know queen street's kind of like soho in new york only you know a little bit smaller <laughs> so we'd have to explain who we were and we went from the margins of existence to the mainstream which was a completely it was almost going behind and I wouldn't say enemy lines but I would say it was going behind the lines of what you would perceive as the power structure right and so that was a big that was a big learning curve for us there were there was also as much as you know uh, the audience was really um embracing us you know live and and obviously through the video and and through the radio there were there were people in the music business who were not quite sure about us they were you know circumspect and not really like you know taking us seriously thinking we were just kind of a bit of a novelty act right mm-hmm. and or they didn't like our politics um or they found us too opinionated so there were two things going on which was an audience that was embracing the music and saying yes and then and then the business piece was like who are you i i mean i remember an incident where when we were up for the juno of the uh, the for single of the year for rise up i remember being at the juno awards the first time thinking oh my god this is unbelievable like how do we even get here and i'm walking down the hall and i think it was brian adams manager who kind of crossed past me and i'm like hi you know i'm just being friendly and he looks at me he goes we're going to crush you <laughs> and i thought oh my god this is really intense this now we're in the world of competition Mhm because you go from this friendly environment where everyone's supporting each other and then suddenly you're like, oh let's this is this artistic community everybody should be happy and celebrating each other and then suddenly one of the first things you hear is we're going to destroy you oh, oh yeah. wow <laughs> yeah i know it was kind of scary i mean like that was the year that we won single of the year uh, and Brian Adams won all the other awards but he was up for that single and i'm sure <laughs> Uh I'm sure his manager was not happy but look he's done very well in his life. Yes, I I think he has if he if he can't let go of that one single then that manager might have a few other problems going. On. <laughs> yeah. No, but I remember that really scared me. I was it was so traumatic. I was like, "Oh my god, I'm in such a different world." <laughs> so even the radios were fighting you and this is something that, like, I, once again, this was before my time, but radio was a little more segregated back then, was it not? 
Yeah, you know, I think it, what it was is that radio, as a, I mean, the good news is, is, is that radio at that time would play your full album. Like if you were on an FM station, they would still play your full album so you could actually hear the, the album, uh, you know. But they were coming out of, so this is early 80s, so they would have been dominated a lot by, I'd say, rock and roll uh, supergroups like Loverboy or uh, Triumph or, you know, kind of rock, you know, rock coming out of folk. But the mainstay of mainstream radio would be kind of rock pop, right? Mm-hmm. You could still get your song played on the radio if you were in another genre, but they had this 33% Canadian content rule where, like, they would never play above 33%, <laughs> right? <laughs> they played their bare minimum, and then <laughs> and after that, yeah. it was free game. Yeah, so somehow we slipped through the cracks uh, of that. And, and I think that our music at that time, what it really indicated was that there was a possible willingness to accept a change about the new music that was coming out. Uh, at the same time, keep in mind, uh, throughout England and the UK and that, there was the whole new wave. So you had all these other bands coming out of England that were getting on the radio and new wave stuff like Pat Benatar and, uh, you know, Blondie and all of that stuff that was coming from the States. So the music itself was morphing, and we kind of slid into that somehow. So you guys kind of caught into a transitional period for the music that was on the radio. Yeah, I would say it was a transitional moment that we were able to ride the wave into. Okay, but even then, still, your lyrics were a little political compared to a lot of the music that they were playing. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, have you ever heard of Billy Bragg? Yes. Billy, yeah, Billy Bragg, very well-known, kind of folky, political singer guy. He he was happening at, at the exact same time. But because he came from the folk tradition very much, and, and he was almost heralded as kind of the Pete, Pete Seeger or the Woody Guthrie of his time, you know, uh, there was pushback. For sure. There was a lot of pushback. Um, I remember it very clearly. But in many ways, we always knew that we were cutting a path that others would soon follow and it would be easier for them. You were trailblazers. I mean, I think we always knew that we were a very unique moment in time. Absolutely. You guys were blazing a trail for Canadian music because, like you said, the New Wave movement was happening in the UK, but it hadn't really started in Canada for Canadian musicians yet. Well, actually, to be true, uh, to be honest, I would say that Martha and the Muffins, who later morphed into M plus M, Martha and the Muffins had a very big hit called um, Echo Beach. I love that song. Yeah, it's a great song. And also, they were our label mates in this independent company that we'd been signed to, Current current Sounds. So they had Echo Beach, which was this big hit in the, in, in the UK, and then they started to have all these other hits when Danny Lanois also 
produced their record as well. And so I would say there was a very strong new wave presence starting to be in, in Canada, starting from as early as 1978, because there was the punk movement before that too. But I don't know if it was national. I, you know, I, I mean, I know M plus M was national, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. I know that there were other bands at the time that considered themselves new wave. So Martha and the Muffins and yourselves began to pave the path for groups like the Spoons and other groups such as that. Yeah, the Spoons uh, were also happening at the same time. I don't think that we influenced them in any way. Uh, they were happening at the same time. There was a group called Boys Brigade. Did you ever hear of Boys Brigade? They did a couple records. I've heard a little bit about them. Yeah, so th there were a lot of groups starting to come, but Spoons were starting to happen at the same time for sure. Fantastic. So let's take it into that second album then. For um, At the Feet of the Moon, I love the title track to the album. Really catchy riff just to start it off, but it's your second album. You guys have a little bit more time to put this together. Did that end up assisting things? Did the record label try and put their hands into this album a little bit more? What was the second album like? Yeah, I think the you know the second and the third record for sure they wanted to put their hands more. I think what they were hoping for was a uh, uh, was a hit in the states. The moment that the first record did really well, they wanted to have access to the states. And the first record, you know, it went to Europe and did very well in 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 the Benelux, uh, Benelux countries like, you know, Belgium and Netherlands and uh, Germany, etc. They wanted the second record maybe have, so they got a producer from New York who used to be in a group uh, called Material, and he he came and did our, produced our second record. The song Feet of the Moon itself was a song written uh, when... Laurie Conger, who's the keyboard player, myself, and Lynn Fernie, who wrote some of the lyrics on Rise Up, went to Mexico, and we met a Mayan whose name translated to At the Feet of the Moon. Oh, wow. And so I said to him, I want to use this as a title of our record. Are you okay? <laughs> and he said, <laughs> sure. So, um, and then I wrote, the, like, the bulk of the lyrics for for Feet of the Moon came from a trip from Mexico, when we, basically a pondering on the Mayan culture, culture. Oh, wow. When you say that, when you look at the lyrics, you can definitely like understand that. But when you first hear the lyrics, it doesn't necessarily ring through. But like when you say that, I can understand yeah. how it relates to the Mayan culture, definitely. Yeah, it feels pretty abstract, I know. But that's when I started to have... Uh, personally, myself, I became very interested in shamanic culture and in um, ancient indigenous culture. And so I started to, I knew we were going to Mexico, but I was doing a lot of research on Mayan uh, history. And there we met this, you know, this, this young guy who tells me his name translates. He, te he told us his name, I can't pronounce it, but says it translates to at the feet of the moon and he says you know i'm one of a very few uh lineages mayans who are left 
you know, we have basically been wiped out. So, um, anyways, we wrote that song. Wow. So, At the Feet of the Moon, once again, another album, it goes gold. It actually sells better than your first one. Yeah, yeah, it goes uh, platinum, actually. Yeah, ends up going platinum, and it ends up getting you more Juno nominations, ends up getting you more traction, but you guys still aren't exactly breaking it into the States either, which is what your label wanted. So Yeah, that's right. So were they giving you a little bit of negative feedback at this time, or? Yeah, they were. I mean, they kept, you know, one of the things that was, I think, always difficult for them was how do we, so Billy Bryant and myself, we were the co-founders of the group, and so we were the ones that were signed to the record deal, not the whole group. Okay. They always, they, this was around the time that they started to give me a little bit of grief about they wanted me to stand out more, to become more of the front for the band, because they didn't know how to market a whole seven-piece band, right? Mm-hmm. And like that would be like, huh, what do we do with this? So there was a li- there was a growing pressure for me to to identify myself a little bit more separate from the group, and uh, both Billy and I really resisted that. So, uh, yeah, the pressure was coming, and obviously the pressure was there to create music that could be played on radio. But, you know, at that point, again, artists like Brian Adams and Corey Hart were starting to break through into the States, but they had a very different sound. You know, our sound was not, they weren't ready for us yet. I mean, we had a, we had a subculture really fervent falling following in in places like Chicago and LA and New York and places where there were large urban hipster areas, they knew about Parachute Club. They'd heard about Parachute Club because I think Rise Up had made it onto the Billboard dance charts. There was a version of it that was went onto the dance charts. So, but we didn't, you know, middle America would not really respond to the kind of grooves that we were playing, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Because, as you mentioned before, it was a completely different political time, and America is history shown. Ronald Reagan definitely did a lot of things. <laughs> if you look at the ch- the dance charts at that point, it would be Tina Turner, Charday, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, Bowie, all of that kind of stuff. Our music didn't quite fit into a format there. However, the interesting thing is that Germany found our music very interesting because they were the second generation of young people who came out of the war, World War II, right? Which was very traumatic, obviously, for the collective of Germany, Mm -hmm. given what that war was about. And so those people were really political. Those kids, those young people our age, were very intellectual and political and uh, unabashed about it. And they loved our music. They, so we did very well in Europe. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I can see how it would connect to them for a completely different reason as they're trying to rise up from the ashes of... 
history and something that I'm sure they were also like being blamed for for right. something that wasn't even their thing. So I can see how they connected with it in an entirely different way. Yeah, precisely. You're absolutely right. You know, they had a level of guilt. The people that I knew that I met when we were over there, you know, really smart interesting people but there was a level of guilt there and a kind of depression in a way in in the consciousness of this generation where they're feeling like they're having to make up for the sins of the past and so uh you know berlin at the time was a fascinating experience you know on our second record the berlin wall was still up on our third record the Berlin Wall had fallen. Wow. Like, you know, so in 86. And I heard this amazing story because uh, we had, obviously, we had friends who were DJs over there. Um, they, kept, they, they kept a piece of the wall. We had a song called Cheat the Prophecy, and we had a song called Walls and Laws, which was on our third record there. And apparently people used to spray paint uh, the titles of our songs on the walls all over. And so somebody got a piece of the wall that had Cheat the Prophecy on it. Wow. Which I thought was really cool. I would love to get that. I would love to get that as a memento. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then even if from there, that's, that's kind of like, that's history just showing just how from one part of the world, how you guys were able to influence kids who were going through an entirely different experience, especially in a time where music wasn't nearly as accessible as it is now. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. That just really speaks to the power of what this was able to do in its time. Yeah. Well, that's why I think it really fed our notion of, of <laughs> the music idealist who believes that or hopes that your music could actually change a piece of the world, right? The Desert Tiger Podcast. And unfortunately, not everybody involved with the process was seeing eye to eye with this changing the world goal. And of course, we're going to dive a little bit further into what I mean with that very soon. But before we do that, we just want to take a little bit of a break here. Talk to the listeners of the Desert Tiger Podcast. Those beautiful, beautiful listeners and of course, some of you have been messaging me asking me, Hey, Colton, what happened to those best of year one and year two episodes that you mentioned a few weeks back there that you said you were going to release? Well, I ended up deciding that we were so close to episode 100. Why wouldn't we make that part of the 100 episodes celebration? So rather than having a best of year one and year two, we're going to do a best of 100 so, of course, that means that there's a lot more time for you guys to send in your favorite moments of Desert Tiger for this to let us know what you think some of the greatest moments of the show have been, what some of your favorite things are. And, of course, we'll give you a shout out, show you a little bit of love for that effort for going in and doing so. Because, you know, I love you. You guys know that you're a big part of this Desert Tiger family. So if you want to go ahead and, you know, hit us up on Twitter or even email us at desert.tiger.podcast at gmail.com, giving us your suggestions. Heck, maybe even send in some questions if you want to. 
we haven't really done like a Q&A episode with you guys and me before either. So maybe if you guys have some questions, maybe we could do like a Q&A episode as well for that part of the 100 year anniversary celebrations type thing too. I mean, maybe if we get enough of them, maybe we'll go ahead and do that. Maybe we'll just make it part of an episode. We'll see what happens. Like I said, go ahead, uh, head us up on Twitter, Desert Tiger Pod. Message us on Facebook at Desert Tiger Entertainment. And once again, desert.tiger.podcast at gmail.com. And one last thing before we jump back in to this convo with Lorraine Sagato, and that, you all know it is I love DTP.com because not only is it the best way for you to support the show, it's also the place where you're going to go ahead and get decked out, swagged up, and geared on up in the latest and greatest Desert Tiger Podcast swag. And like I told you before, we're going to have some toques coming your way. There's going to be a lot of new things coming in 2020. We're looking at all sorts of different cool avenues, ideas of different ways so that you can support the show everywhere you go. And I mean, if even if you guys have cool ideas of different ways that we can continue to allow you to support the show, why don't you go ahead and send those our way too? And while you're on the internet, while you're on the phone, why don't you head on over to ilovedtp.com, check out what's already in the web store, and well, maybe pick something up so that you can represent Desert Tiger every single place you go. In front of your friends, in front of your enemies, and no, wait, that's backwards. And in front of your friends, in front of your family, and even in front of your enemies. Because they truly cannot stop you from really achieving what you want to achieve at its core. Alright, let's get back into this conversation with Lorraine Sagato of The Parachute Club. But unfortunately, as much as you guys wanted to change the world, your record label still maybe didn't necessarily want to facilitate this change. And Small Victories definitely does touch on some of the aspects of Let's Change the World, but it definitely does still take a little bit of a shift. The record label ends up bringing in a prolific songwriter like John Oates, but it ends up kind of turning some of the fans against you because they think that you guys are transitioning away from who the Parachute Club is. Yeah, and that's, you're so right. This is precisely what happened is, again, I was feeling the pressure from the record company to be standing out front more. They were, even in the press photos, they were trying to separate me from the rest of the group. Um, I was getting pressure to basically make the group smaller and, you know, become more, yeah, more like the singer with just the band. And that was not what the group was about. I mean, the thing is, John Oates was a fantastic producer as a, as a producer and as a person, but but because he came from this American idea of, uh, you know, there's always a star and his whole thing was pop music, right? So by this point, the record company really, really wanted a hit in the States. And so they wanted us to go down this trout, this road of kind of popifying our music a little bit more. And every producer that you have, you know, I don't know about now, but back then 
if you had a producer, that's where your cachet was. Danny Lanois or Michael Beinhorn, who was a huge, he went on to do uh, Chili Peppers and a couple of these heavy metal groups that did really, really well. But back then, the cachet was in the producer. And so if you have a well-known producer, then they, of course, want to do an imprint on you. They want to imprint their musical vibe on you, right? And I think what started to happen for us as a group, that we started to lose the magic that was us, which was a collective of people who are best at playing live and playing together and being together. Well, the recording process really pulls that apart. You know, you lay down your bed tracks and then someone comes in and does a sax solo or a percussion solo and then, this, and then the voices all come in separately, you know, okay, now we're going to do Bee Gees, and now we're going to do the lead. Well, we were used to a more organic process of playing together, so you will see that our sound changes at that point. And that's what happened, really, is that producers imposed themselves, and in good ways, too. I mean, John was a great vocalist, so he really focused on getting good vocal sounds and you know the groove in many ways was secondary wow so not only did it change the dynamic of the sound but they also tried changing the dynamic of the group by trying to it wasn't necessarily like everything was going that way but they were trying to put you at the forefront which changes the whole as you say like this is a conversation and as a conversation everybody should be included but no they're trying to put you at the forefront of things which might which might make things a little tough for everyone else who's contributing yeah for sure i mean i would say at that point tension started to arise in the group we also had a situation with a manager who at that point who was who will be, shall remain nameless, but who at that point was in many ways pitting us all against each other. Oh, you know, someone was saying, oh, you don't need Lorraine, you can get another lead singer. Oh, you don't need this person, you can get another percussionist. Oh, you don't need the, you know. So probably the manager was also adhering to the pressure coming from the record company to try to get us to fit in, belong, and conform with whatever else was going on out there. And keep in mind, in the 80s, touring a seven-piece band is, is a big deal. That's a lot of people to bring on the road and a lot of uh, support around that that you need. So you have to make a certain guarantee, and, you know, it's got to be worth it. Mm-hmm. And especially if you guys are trying to break into the States, maybe you don't necessarily have the ability to ask for the guarantee for seven people to be able to right. not only make enough money to feed themselves, but also pay their bills back home. Exactly. And that's why, you know, when we played in the States, it would be, uh, you know, a place like New York or, you know, like a big city. Okay. So you guys weren't able to actually string together a full tour of the united states then no never oh wow okay so and then i also see that at one point in 1988 the label ends up licensing rise up to mccain for as terrible as this is rising crust pizza dough was it 1988 there was there was one that was old south which might have been 1988 
Okay. And then uh, uh, there was another one later on in the mid-1990s where they licensed the song to uh, Rise McCain's Rise and Crest Pizza. And interestingly enough, at that particular period of time, we had not been paid our publishing royalties for about eight years, and we were already um, putting together a a lawsuit to try to you know get our publishing from our publisher. And they, in in selling the song to McCain's Rising Crest Pizza, they basically the publisher uh, breached our contract, which allowed us to then tack that on to the lawsuit and say, not only have you not paid us for eight years, but now you've breached the contract because Rise Up itself is a song that cannot be sold for political, um, uh, spiritual, or commercial purposes without the express consent of all of the writers, and that never happened. Oh, wow. So people were uh, stopping me in the street and going, you know, you, you've sold out, you, you know, yell. I was getting all sorts of letters and emails, and we never received a penny of that money. So what we did is we actually took it into litigation. It was a it was a you know really ugly situation, but uh, before it went to court, uh, they settled and we got our publishing back. We did not get any money. Like we probably made enough money to pay our lawyer, but we were able to retrieve. Our publishing, so that was a bit of a David and Goliath situation where we won. Wow! But we couldn't tell anybody because there was a non-disclosure agreement for many years. Mm-hmm. And abs- And after that fact, I mean, this commercial had already been on the TV and had been seen, so everyone else had already been of the mindset that you guys had sold out. So how do you guys even go about? proving that this wasn't the case because this also is at the beginning of the internet and everything else so how do you get the message out that no this wasn't the case we have our music rights back and this song is just as important as it should be and shouldn't be used for commercial gain yeah well luckily um the globe and mail picked up an article on the situation, and that started a flurry of other media because I think it was easier at that point to get media to pay attention to stuff than it is today. <laughs> <laughs> and so that that got the ball rolling, and soon it became known that we were fighting this fight. I think what we were not, because of the non-disclosure, uh, we were not able to say, hey, look, we won <laughs> for many, many years, but we did win. And uh, but, but I think a lot of people, based on the media that we did get, were able to hear and see that this was not the path for this song. Okay, well, that that's awesome. So this ended up being the second time that the record label actually attempted to commercialize the song. Yeah. Wow. I would say the publishing company, mm-hmm. not the record label. Okay, but, okay. So EMI, yeah, not yeah. current records. EMI was the second perpetrator, and and I think the first would have been cur- current publishing. Okay. Okay. So what ended up leading to the um, the first break? I guess I would call it because the Parachute Club has come and played in different 
forms various members have come back and played when opportunities have come arise so what led to the first uh moment that you guys decided to take a break which ended up leading to your solo music the truth of it is was the relentless touring that we were doing and the fact that it was a very large band and and we had a huge nut to kind of cover all the time started to create tensions within the band and and also we had a situation with this manager who was very you know he was he was was kind of putting a lot of everything up his nose you know and uh, that situation was creating tension with the group as well. And Billy and I started to see that, you know, what, which was a beautiful, amazing band, was starting to change in its energy because we weren't able to... I think a lot of bands go through the experience where they are either ripped off or money disappears from the the gross amount coming in, right? And mm-hmm. we were noticing that as well. And rather than continue to... And then I was also continuously getting this pressure, you know, to step out front and... And and it and it created a lot of conflict in my heart, and I and I couldn't. So we needed a break, and I wanted to rethink the situation, and so we decided to simply take a break. And we'd also lost one of our key members, Lori Conger, decided to leave the group, and she was also a, a songwriter. You know, I think that the tensions that were accumulating just tended to taint like it wasn't as magical anymore and we didn't want to be that group that just played and you know by rote you know what I mean so we took this break and then never went back kind of wow so it ends up leading to a solo music career your first album Phoenix so how do you end up making the decision that you want to release your own album well, to be honest with you, I never really wanted to be a solo artist. I, I thrive better in collaborative environments. I love the thing I love the most is to bring talent together and to watch them shine, and then I can shine within that. I reluctantly did this first solo record, and I think when I did it, I probably was a little relieved for a moment that I didn't have to take care of a seven-piece band or, or figure out like all of the nuances of that. I probably just needed a break for a minute. But I did do this solo record. And then at that point, I was kind of, to be honest with you, ambivalent about the music business. And so I did the record, but I wasn't fully committed to it, to be honest. Really? So after you release it, did you tour it at all? Or Yeah, I did. I did, uh, I did do dates across the country and that, but it wasn't the same um, in that I had put together a band. I had put together an amazing band. I always had amazing people playing, but it just didn't have the family vibe of parachute clubs. So I, I think I was disoriented and disillusioned. I think that would have been my disillusioned album. (laughs) (laughs) After Phoenix, you take a, bit of time between then and luminous city so what is your next move after releasing this 
album that you weren't necessarily exactly sure that you wanted to release as a solo artist and so it takes eight years like i say to get to the next album so what is the transition period like between there and what are you doing in between that makes you more comfortable with releasing another solo album well i was at that point i think i had mentioned to you that i was very interested in shamanic studies and so i became a bit of a student of you know mysticism and and uh philosophy and uh, different religions. I was started exploring a lot. To, I, I decided I really wanted to find who I was. Who am I now? What am I doing? So I, I did that and I started to work on other projects which were projects around because uh, I am a multidisciplinary artist so I did some film stuff and I did um, some cultural events and I did you know, whatever creative things I could do that were projects that could, you know, allow me to survive. And there was a period of time in there where I actually was quite sick for about four years, uh, where I had a very severe uh, kind of uh, immune breakdown in my body. So I wasn't well for a couple of years. So I was trying to heal that piece. And uh, I wasn't really, you know, I don't make records unless I feel like I have something to say. I'm not that kind of musician that, you know, lives to sing and lives to play every moment of the day. I have to, it takes me a while to to let the stew, you know, become a brew. Mm-hmm. And, and so that eight-year period was a period of deep exploration. I was in my early 30s at that point, or I was in my 30s, and leading up to my going 40 and I was just really wanting to figure out a different path for myself Hmm. so you're really just exploring that different aspects of cultures and everything else that you had already been exploring and had interest in but now had more time to delve yourself with into yeah exactly and and I I would say that was my uh uh, deep spiritual growth period, <laughs> you know, like where I was really drilling down into who is Lorraine now? Like, who are you? What do you want to say? Who mm-hmm. are you emotionally? Who are you physically? Who are you in this world? Because by the age of 33, in many ways, I had accomplished what I had set out to do, which is I wanted to become a full-time musician and I wanted to, I wanted to write songs that spoke for people who were invisible or didn't have, you know, or who had marginalized voices. And I was able to do that. So then I had to figure out, now what do I want to do? You suddenly found that you had reached a lot of your goals and had to decide where did you want to express yourself next and where did you want to branch out into next, which ended up being the world of film and event coordinating and public speaking and other things. Yes, for sure, because during that period of time, I was doing public speaking in universities around, you know, issues like women in the media. I was doing, oh, I was doing so many different projects. I had come from, before I got to Toronto in the mid-70s, I had studied film for three, three and a half years. And so I, I had always thought to myself, if I can't make it in music, then I can maybe do it in some other aspect of of creative communication. So I returned to those pieces, 
No, so it was it was a dream that maybe you had already started, but had been set aside, and then it suddenly became to the moment where this could be realized again. Yeah. So um, I, I went there, and then in 98, um, put together Luminous City, and I had to wait for the song to be, uh, or the album to be released. That was on True North Records, and so I decided to go to... I had a really dear friend uh, who was an actress who was working on a TV show called Black Harbor, and I decided to go out to Nova Scotia to hang there uh, for a period of time until my CD came out. But I felt really, I really felt a connection and a kinship to the East Coast people I was meeting, the Nova Scotian, you know, the Haligonians and the Nova Scotia folks and so I ended up staying there kind of working that part of the country for I think it was a year and a half I was living out there and then uh, came back to Toronto in the 1990s then started work on a film about Queen Street called Queen Street West the Rebel Zone and that took me two years to pull together Oh, so you actually went back and did a documentary on the scene that you came from. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to... I had always felt, you know, in my early experience, like one of the first jobs I ever had before I was uh, a working full-time musician when I came to Toronto was that I was an assistant to an art dealer, a guy who became very famous and very rich. I was his assistant, and he would bring in all this art from New York. And I would, you know, my job was to pick it up at the airport and to hang it on the wall for these rich clients, right? And I learned so much about the New York art world at that point. And I had always felt when I was living on Queen Street, and even in my travels later with Parachute Club when I went back to New York, because, you know, one, in the late 70s, I'm hanging a piece of art on the wall by Andy Warhol, but in 1980, I do, in the 80s, I end up doing an interview with Andy Warhol where he's interviewing Parachute Club and John Oates. Huh. And so this full circle moment made me realize that, in fact, so much of what was happening in New York was also happening at the same time in, in Toronto, on Queen Street, in that area. But the difference between Americans and Canadians is they talk about their cultural history. We don't. And so I wanted to do a, uh, a film of, about that, about all of the amazing things that were happening on the street at the time that in fact changed the, uh, changed the city, which then had its effect on the national identity of the country. No, it's incredible because that entire movement ended up shifting Toronto because was it it became more of an arts city after that movement, did it not? It is totally, totally. Wow, so that's incredible how just that Queen Street movement ends up creating just that wonderful art scene inside of Toronto, which now the Toronto scene is suddenly bursting out across Canada. Yeah, and it's not just it wasn't just the music or the it was theater, it was fashion, it was performance art, it was food, you know, all the all the influx of immigrants that were coming into Toronto were also bringing their food influences. So you had you know when the boat people came over, 
um, in the late in in the late seventies, early eighties. I'm not sure in the date on that, but the boat people that came over from Cambodia and Vietnam brought with them their food, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you had ba- you had these bars and restaurants that were opening that were Thai places, right? So Thai food came to Canada. Huh, because, like, once again, like I say, I come from a time where, like, these restaurants already existed all across right. Canada. So, I like, know. wow, that's incredible to just know that with the culture and how it was an embraced, it all just came together like that. Yeah. Wow. So you continue yeah. working in film and continue shining a light on arts with films like Lowdown Tracks and other things. At any point did during this process, did you feel that the Parachute Club would end up getting back together? Well, you know, from time to time we had been offered gigs and they would have to have a certain guarantee attached to them because we are a large band. Mm-hmm. And and in certain moments when I felt that the event was, you know, interesting or it was different, uh, like we never wanted to be a reunion band, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but when it was felt that the gig was interesting, we would put the band together and 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 play the gig. Um, of course, we uh, lost a couple of members along the way, and and then most recently, in in recent years, you know, Margot Davidson, who was our sax player, had passed away, and then my partner Billy Bryan's passed away, and so it that became more difficult for me to Im- imagine how would I how would I re reimagine you know parachute club at this point mm-hmm. although enough time has passed that it's quite possible i still write with david gray who is the um guitar player the original guitar player in the band and the producer as well he produced my last record uh invincible decency so you you'd hear a lot of the same kinds of grooves you know no matter what i do i sound like parachute club because <laughs> Primarily, that's how I write. Well, and it continues that world music sound as well, which just also just encapsulates your vision and your message so well. Yeah, I think I stayed kind of consistent. You know, it might be interesting for me to to explore other things at this point, and I've been thinking about that lately. Like, I've always wanted to do a remake of 1970s male rock songs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, do like really do a regroove on a great Rolling Stones song or, you know, something like that. Yeah, I've stayed pretty much in my wheelhouse of groove oriented music, except for maybe like the biggest departure would have been Phoenix, which is my first solo record. Okay, so... You actually mentioned 2015's Invincible Decency, produced by a member of the Parachute Club, so it still has that connection. Also, very much world music. It's an incredible album. I listened to it this morning. And oh, what ended thank up, you. What ended up leading to the release of Invincible Decency? Because it's almost 20 years after Luminous City, and I know. suddenly like you're back into the music world again, and... You're releasing something, and like you said earlier, you don't really create music unless you have the purpose to, unless you have the reason to have a message. So what was the message? What was the purpose? 
Well, I think that, you know, in the interim of that period of time, I had I had entered into a partnership that had two children involved, and I was thinking a lot about the kind of world that they were going to be growing up in. And I also found myself, I've always, to be honest with you, been the ambivalent musician in a way, like not my ambivalence is not towards music. My ambivalence is towards the business, trying to figure out how to be authentic within that. I don't know how to play the games that it takes to be in that, so I tend to pull myself out. But then sometimes the urge to write happens all at once, and I noticed that I was getting a lot of music all at once. During the time that Only Human was coming, my co-founding partner, Billy Bryant, had been diagnosed with lung cancer. And we were about to actually remount Parachute Club and do a whole bunch of dates together because we'd written some music with each other. And we had some, you know, pretty cool stuff. And then he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and that project went on hold. And I found that that emotion of knowing that I might potentially lose him really unleashed a lot of of pent-up music, I think. Wow. And my desire to make sure that the music came to fruition. And then, of course, during the making of, of the record, he passed away. So that then, that was the song, um, Times Like This. Um, and so I then felt an urgency to... to to get that music out. And then uh, there is one song on the record, I think that I sing in Italian, called Tengo le Tasche Vuote. And that was like just an homage to, uh, you know, I was born and raised Italian. It was my first language. I'd never cut in an Italian track before. <laughs> so I thought it would be fun to kind of sing in Italian and uh, to a Latin groove. <laughs> so I was just exploring African rhythms and rhythms that were interesting to me. And still continuing to explore and expand a sound that you had began to explore almost like years upon years beforehand. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible just how just those moments and how suddenly how time happens and you can't control everything and that just creates this onslaught this flow of music forward from you because suddenly for years it's it's not there and then as time begins to turn it's just like i suddenly have these emotions that i need to get out well you know i'm reminded i'm always reminded i remember hearing a quote i believe it was john cage who who was an experimental you know musician who kind of went away for many 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 years no, John Cage or Philip. Anyways, this guy, um, when people ask him, where did you go? And he said, well, I became a mushroom farmer. And they're like, mushroom farmer? Why mushroom farmer? And, and he said, well, you know, they're very interesting, complex, delicate plants. They take a while to grow or certain conditions for which they can grow. And I learned a lot about music in that process of nurturing, you know, these mushrooms. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the gist of it was is some things 
take root quickly and other things need um, a certain environment to, for, for which to grow and flourish and take root. And, wow. And, and, and I think that that is more, I really resonate with that. I think that I need a particular environment around me sort of indicates which genre, which medium, which creative medium I'm going to end up using to express myself because it's not always music. You know, sometimes it's producing other people's cultural events. Sometimes it's um, writing for newspapers and writing, like being, I've written many, many things over the years that are not about music, but like articles or essays or this or that. So it depends on what is calling me to be creative and uh, what do I need to be saying at this time in, in, in this moment so here we are, you know, we return again, oddly, to Rise Up, because all of a sudden Rise Up is is coming up, and it's got its 35th anniversary. I am approached, or I am told that Slate, in, uh, Slate Music is interested in helping to put together an anniversary version of Rise Up. And I, my feeling is, okay, how can I do this in a different way? Well, instead of just singing the song 35 years later, my idea was to get an intergenerational group of people, some younger people who were up and coming to sing the song as a ch- and, and also I let's make this a charity single so uh, so that the streams and the downloads, even though they might not amount to much, but they end up going to four a nonprofit organizations that are basically acknowledging and helping to grow young activists. So that's what I end up doing. That's incredible how it ends up involving not only new musicians, not only comes out again in a new form and possibly connects with this new generation of people who are also looking for a voice, but also just allows this new life to be born and this creative flow to move forward. And like you said, give it a whole new life because this new song, it starts with this powerful spoken word entry by Rita Badur. And then it's just has this powerful collection of voices such as, which was the parachute club when it started. Yeah. You know, so the intent is the same, which is really to bring hope to a situation, you know, energy and hope to the situation. And the interesting thing about the charity single is that I can, it's something that I can work for the rest of my life in that I can talk about it for the rest of my life. Hey, there's this charity single. And if all you have to do is, all you have to do is just play the, even the video. If you don't want to download it on Spotify or buy it or donate or whatever, but all of this goes to these charities um, who are actually working to bring up young activists. So I can talk about that for the rest of my life because it's not like, Oh, I released a record and then it didn't go anywhere. You know, back in the day, it'd be like you'd release it, and if there's no, it could come and go in a minute. Yeah, so then that became an interesting project for me, and that took two years because I ended up directing the video for the country version. There was a pop version. The country version's called Rise Up Redux, and that was produced by a a young Canadian woman out of Nashville. So I got to work with all these, uh, you know, these really 
interesting contemporary producers who are working for mainstream country and mainstream pop world, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I find that interesting. So Well, and it's amazing how the song now in its 35 years, it's reborn not only through remixes and re-recordings, but it's also now bursting out into other genres and even the Common Cause Collective's version. Also, the streams and everything for that also go towards charitable causes. So this song not only in its original form continues to create these differences, but even in different genres, it continues to create change and opportunity. That's what we're hoping for. I mean, that would be ideal, right? Is is that that people come to it and sort of see can see themselves in it. And then of course, um, you know, to our surprise and delight, then this year what happened was we they told us that they were gonna induct the song into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is such an incredible honor to be in the pantheon of sort of Canadian uh, music uh, library in a way, you know, and uh, I think it's probably what's really what was really exciting for us is this particular song. It you know because it is a message song, and it's about equality and empowerment. Really speaks a lot to the core values of what it is to be Canadian. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so um, that's really exciting to have a kind of message song in. In, in the you know the collection of 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 Hall of Fame that's that's pretty cool no and it just goes to cont- once again continue to express just how powerful this song and its message was at its time it's it, it it's importance in the history of Canadian music and it happens at a time where you guys are releasing these 35th anniversary signals so what a perfect time for it to get inducted for its message and its importance. Yeah. We've discussed Rise Up, the single. We've discussed the career of the Parachute Club and Lorraine Segato. So I only really have one question left. And before I get there, I must ask, where can the listeners of the show find out a little bit more about Lorraine and her future endeavors? Oh, well, um, I guess, and I never update it regularly, but the way to go would be LorraineSegato.com. Um, and then I'm on Twitter. I think I have a couple different feeds, but I'm not sure. I'm sure you can find me if you want me. I'm, I have a Facebook page for the stuff. I have, in the next year, what I'm going to be working on is a project that I have been writing for several years, many years, uh, and it's called Get Off My Dress, and it's a a one-woman show that is autobiographical, and it has monologue, story, song, film. It's got all sorts of stuff, and it basically is uh, my story, but it's a very philosophical story about how I see the world, and uh, that's what's going to be coming up next. Okay, fantastic. I was actually going to ask what's coming up next. So I'm extremely excited for this uh, autobiographical one-woman play, Don't Step on My Dress. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about where in the process of writing this you may be? Oh, well, it is written. It has been written. Now it just needs to be edited and workshopped. And so over the course of the next year, I'll be workshopping in different parts of the country 
um, until we can lock it in and then hopefully to be touring it. And it's called Get Off My Dress. Okay, okay, Get Off My Dress. Okay, sorry about that there. That's okay. (laughs) Thank you so much for Lorraine for joining me here today to discuss the Parachute Club, Rise Up, and of course, your future in the theater world. Thank you. Good luck with everything, and I really appreciate all the research you did, all the reading you would have had to do to find out about my life. You know, I never take for granted the people that uh, support uh, the ecosystem of music and art. So thank you so much. No, you're an incredibly dedicated person towards your causes and your arts. So it was a pleasure doing the research. All right, Colton. Have a great day, okay? You as well. All right. Bye. The remixed version of Rise Up, you know, the one that you heard earlier on today's episode of the podcast, the new Parachute Collective's version of Rise Up, and last but not least, the Common Cause Collective's version of Rise Up, that being the country version of the track. All of these versions of Rise Up are available now on your favorite streaming services, and the proceeds from those streams are all going to amazing, wonderful causes that are going to help warm your heart maybe just a little bit more than the song itself. And while you're on your favorite streaming services, why don't you take a moment to check out Lorraine Segato's latest solo album as well, that being entitled Invincible Decency. You heard us talk about it here today. If you're into the whole world music vibe, it's definitely something you're going to want to check out as it is an incredible listen, I must say, myself. And why don't you go ahead and check out LorraineSegato.com and maybe keep your eyes open for her upcoming play, Get Off My Dress. I know I'm going to be keeping my eyes wide open for that one. And I want to go ahead and give one last big Desert Tiger thank you to Lorraine Segato for joining me here on this episode of the Desert Tiger podcast. And I want to go ahead and thank Eric Alper for helping setting things all up. You guys know what it is. EA is the man. He helps us all the time over here and we love him for everything that he does. And last but not least, we need to thank you, you, the listener of the Desert Tiger Podcast, for tuning in once again to this episode of the DTP. If you're new, why don't you go ahead and consider hitting the subscribe or follow button on whatever service you happen to be tuning into right now. If you enjoyed what you heard enough today, maybe you want to go ahead and review the show on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Stitcher, as that helps the show chart. And what does charting mean? Well, it helps get the show in front of more eyes and it helps us get bigger and better guests. So it's a win-win situation for both of us. And maybe if you enjoyed the show just that, that, that much, maybe you want to take that extra step and go ahead and share this episode on your social media so that you can share it with your friends and your family. Maybe you even want to tell them about it in person, maybe because you think they're going to enjoy it that much. And that would just make me oh so excited if you did so. And if you did share it on your social media, why don't you go ahead and tag Desert Tiger in that post so that we can show you the proper love that you deserve for doing so. 
And maybe while you're going around telling your friends, family, and everyone else about Desert Tiger, maybe you want to do so while wrapping the show. And of course, if you want to do that, you know where to go. It is ilovedtp.com, and that's where you're going to get decked up, geared up, whatever the hell you want to call it, swagged out in your favorite Desert Tiger podcast merchandise so that you can wrap the show every single place you go from your friends, your family, and even your enemies because at the end of the day, they can't truly stop you from being beautiful, from chasing your dreams, and achieving the things that you want to do. So go ahead, find your mountain, climb it, and sing from its highest peak. And until next week, bye bye